Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey everyone, this is Owen Jones. Welcome to the show. Uh, this has been a very, very grim week. In a time which has already been defined uh, by so many horrors. And this is such an important show. And I'm, you know, doing the show is such an honor because, because I can, we can pass the mic, give a platform to the people we need to hear right now in moments like this. Now, I don't think this needs much of an introduction. So many people have been deeply uh, affected by what happened over the last few days. The alleged murder of Sarah Everard, allegedly by a police officer, has caused huge amounts of anger and distress, particularly amongst women, amongst whom there has been an outpouring of sharing experiences of being harassed by men on the streets and, of course, of rampant male violence. And beyond that, just the everyday stress of leaving your home as a woman and having to constantly navigate potential dangers posed by men. Now, this is a conversation we need to have, but this conversation, which was already a, a conversation that was more urgent than ever, took a different dimension yesterday when at the vigil for Sarah Everard, mourners, women mourning what happened to her, were attacked by the police at... <laughs> I mean, many people have spoken online, on WhatsApps, about how the perverse situation where they were texting women at that vigil, asking them if they got home safe. Ludicrous. Grotesque. And this is a conversation, a wide-ranging conversation we're going to have today. Now, before I bring in the speakers, because this is a show which is about platforming the voices that we need to hear, and that isn't me in this particular context, just a bit of basic housekeeping. If you're watching live, hello, uh, please do uh, click through to YouTube if you're not watching on YouTube. It just helps the channel, helps the show. Press, press like, that's good for the algorithm. It encourages other people to come and watch the video and to be educated. And this is going to be a very educational experience. Press notification bell uh, and then you'll get notifications when videos happen. For those supporting us on Patreon, we really appreciate it. It's enabling us to do a documentary at the moment about those companies directly profiteering from the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, and we'll have that video 
later on this week. We have a brilliant videographer who you're paying for. So thank you for your support. It's Patreon slash Owen Jones 84. You can also support the channel and put questions to our amazing speaker uh, by using Super Chat. So please do do that. And uh, and you will help the channel, but also be able to put direct questions to an incredible panel. That is quite enough housekeeping. Let's go straight into this. Now, I'm very honoured to have three fantastic voices who are in this discussion. We've seen perhaps on our TV shows, there are dominant voices and there are other voices which are not being heard. And this is an attempt to correct that balance. So please, uh, it's great, a huge honour, a huge privilege to to introduce Ash Sarkar, the commentator, uh, uh, Bryony Bynon, who's a gender-based violence protection worker for Frontline uh, Sexual and Domestic Violence Services and the Good Night Out campaign for Safer Nightlife, and Nim Ralph, uh, the activist and educator. Thank you so, so much, all of you, for joining us live. Thanks for having us. Thank I you. just want to get, firstly, just your reaction to what happened last night. Now, I know... I know, Bryony, you were there for, for part of what happened. So do you just want to explain what the atmosphere was like uh, at the vigil um, and then your reaction to, to the events as they unfolded? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I mean, as we sort of approached Clapham Common, um, I noticed that there were queues outside all of the florists and the supermarkets, people walking around with um, bunches of flowers, people with, you know, different um, plant pots and everyone was sort of slowly, as the sun was going down, all walking towards the bandstand. Um, and it was, yeah, even just in the moment of being on the street felt, um, yeah, like a very um, heart heart-rending moment to just see people coming um coming together um in spite of, of the decision that had been made that day to sort of cancel the um official uh official vigil um so it was a somber almost silent um walk across the green um <clears throat> as we sort of got to the bandstand you know i, I noticed yeah i didn't see a single person not wearing a mask um everybody was you know pretty well distanced um and a woman um, who uh, was introduced as having experienced state violence, got up to speak. Um, Sisters Uncut were kind of holding it down on on the bandstand. Um, and yeah, it, it was then, I suppose, that just after the sun went down, which says a lot, no? <laughs> uh, after the sun went down uh, was when um, they, yeah, the, the police sort of began to, to storm storm the bandstand. I wasn't there for, for all of that, so I wouldn't want to sort of speak to that, but I do understand from um, legal observers who were there uh, that they uh, they heard that the, uh, the, the police checked that the Everard family had left uh, the scene before um, making that call to, to storm the bandstand, um, which I think also says a lot. But my main impression was that you know, it felt like maybe over a thousand people um, who were there all coming to, to pay respects, um, all mindful and aware of, of COVID and social distancing and now have all yeah, borne witness to um, what the state will do. I mean, Nim, I don't think anyone in this conversation has any illusions in the police and are well aware of the capacity of the police uh, for violence and have witnessed or experienced police violence against protests. This was a vigil, of course, but something can be unsurprising yet still shocking. I just wondered what, what's your sense of what happened yesterday? Yeah, um, I, I was also there. And I think um, it. What I think one of the things experientially in being there that was so shocking is that that moment of walking to the bandstand, there were so many people walking together. Um, 
and everybody having their own conversations about safety um, and gender-based violence. Um, and it felt powerful just to be in a crowd of people um, where safety was the primary kind of bonding experience. And to be there at the bandstand uh, and hearing from different voices about their experiences of violence and the voices in the crowd about people's experiences of violence, to then suddenly have this shift, as Bryony said, as the sun went down, into police forcing their ways through, tramping across the flowers that had been laid, um, pushing people, elbowing people in the face to get to the bandstand and up onto the bandstand. Um, I think the between kind of understanding that theoretically and then experiencing it and seeing it happen. And I think a lot of people there did, as Bryony said, for the first time really see with their own eyes that this is the ways that structures of uh, violence and patriarchy are upheld and practiced, um, not just individual acts, as we're standing there trying to collectively mourn. I'm interested in your thoughts on this. Um, I've seen a Labour official actually actually sent me this. It was a screenshot of a tweet by a, C a Sunday Times journalist. And I think it's important putting all of that in context because it's easy to dismiss. Lefty would say this, wouldn't they? This isn't a lefty. Jonathan Dean, this is deliberate. Nobody does PR tactics this bad by mistake. They want to be feared. They want to lose the city so that they can please even tougher when the next protests come. And wow, they have lost the city. What's your thoughts on that? Well, I think one of the biggest mistakes that we make is that we assume that state violence is always rational and it's not. There's something deeply irrational about the ways in which police forces across the world feel compelled to assert their authority, even if it's a PR disaster. Now, it's one of those things where from the perspective of the police who really are drunk with power, it's a win-win. So if you... Um, impose your authority in a violent brutal and authoritarian way and you don't meet resistance then that's a good job well done but if you do meet resistance and you have scenes which appear disruptive well that's a win because it justifies your use of force in the first place and also becomes a pretext to demand more powers so i do think that there's truth in that which is that it was a display intended um at least in part to to make people feel afraid but i also think that one of the things that we've got to realize about police forces is that they are deeply arbitrary and irrational in, in how they meet out violence. We've seen it time and again. Um, we've seen it in the States where there was that famous photograph, I think at an Occupy demonstration of a police officer quite casually spraying pepper spray into the face of a seated protester. We've seen it in this country with um, the way in which protests have been policed and the, the killing of Ian Tomlinson. These things are irrational and they don't make sense and in lots of ways they're not intended to make sense and when you add gender into the mix um, primarily the victims of police violence tend to be men but when it's targeted at women it is done so in often a, a very explicitly gendered way i recall when i was at a protest this was years ago um against the far right in whitehall and i was a police officer repeatedly punching me in the breasts um you've got to 
have certain thoughts about women if that's what you do if you think that you know this is how you how you police a protest and I think there's something about when women and non-binary people are protesting you know the police's attitude to non-violent lawful protest is itself to consider it illegitimate that when women and non-binary people are out there exercising their democratic rights that they've somehow forfeited the right to protection and to be treated as fragile and delicate that you know patriarchy constructs for women so there's a way in which by protesting at all you're sort of situating yourself outside of those you know norms of femininity I should say, I mean, one question that came in, and I, I just want to say to Felice Amory Eldergaard, who said, trans women in the world um, overstand with our sisters on this. Don't leave us out of the narrative, please. We know the field too well. And I promise you, we will talk about that and we will come on to that. So don't, don't just, just to reassure that, that is absolutely critical and we will be, we will be discussing that. I mean, before we talk about just the why, the context of, of what's happened over the last week, uh, I mean, where do you think, because it is striking, I mean, we all could see on our timeline, not just people on the left, but people who were far from the left who were showing some form of revulsion or disgust at what happened. Where do you think this might end up going? I mean, we've seen already Labour were planning to abstain. I mean, I should say shocking, shocking, but not surprising, uh, given that they abstained on the undercover, on the sky, the spy cops bill, which would allow undercover police officers to rape women um, and to and to kill and to torture. Um, but now they're because of what's happened, they're now going to vote against the policing bill. Please, sir, can I have some more? That's where we're reduced to, unfortunately. Um, but where do you think this will go? I mean, I mean, in just you, for example, I mean, we have this uh, pride uh, in London, which is taking place later this year, and they voted to allow police officers to take part, for example, uh, in the parade against very widespread opposition. I mean, I think now that will be reopened. But where do you think this energy will go? because a door seems to have opened about this, about policing. Yeah, and I think I think if we take a step back from this moment even, I think what we've seen is an increased uh, awareness and expansion of people understanding um, that the police aren't here to protect us in the last few years in a way that I think I just want to kind of lift up um, the BLM mobilisations and uprisings in the face of George Floyd's murder last year, which um, really normalize the phrase defund the police and I think brought that into a stark piece of conversation that uh, this moment is building upon um, and I think witnessing in the mainstream um, which is often not reported in this way the ways that police and state violence are, are used um, or at least not in the last 15 years under a coalition and Tory government um, I think is really shifting. I think where do we go? I worry about the calls right now. The the, the kind of centrist demand right now is for uh, President Dick's resignation, and I think that we should could be much bolder in that. Um, and I think that what we're seeing is a, is a movement really unifying and moving forward. Uh, and so I hope that the bill tomorrow is thrown out. And I think that I'm really glad to see Sisters Uncut organising a demo today at 4 p.m at Scotland Yard exactly to uh, with the hashtag kill the bill uh, to focus on that bill being thrown out which of course expands um, police powers particularly around protest um, I think when I if I think kind of on a movement level uh, when we look at social movements there are two main forms of uh, change that happen through 
successful social mobilizations and movements. Uh, number one being legislative, and so hopefully this will lead to some laws being thrown out, being challenged, um, and uh, a kind of slowing down on Preeti Patel in particular's rampage against regular people, um, but also cultural shift. And I think that you can't, you often don't in a movement have one without the other. And I think what this is really opening the door on is a much greater cultural shift um, in the cultural landscape towards people understanding and engaging with um, these ideas and starting to think about things like defund the police and what is power, um, what is safety, if we start to really interrogate the lie that's sold to us that the police keep us safe. Mm. I mean, on that, on that, Bryony, because obviously this discussion was was very much, you know, opened by the struggle of Black Lives Matter in the United States and across Britain and Europe and other countries as well. Um, and that's important because, I mean, look, if we go back to 2017, Labour under left-wing leadership was actively, of course, the position was to campaign for more police officers on the streets. And that was seen in the context of the 2017 election as important because partly of the terrorist attacks that happened and that was a way of shifting the narrative away from them being able to pin, you're a terrorist apologist on the Labour leadership. That was their fallback. That's what they did. So do you think this could help, you know, all of this together, a new conversation, a, you know, that that the radical left has spoken about this for many, many years, but it hasn't been something which broader set layers of the left have been able to talk about. Another mm. point, and I'll just raise this as well. I think it's important because people are talking about it. Someone says the police were wrong, but I do think a mass gathering while we're still in lockdown is wrong. Households shouldn't be mixing, social distancing or not. And the point I would just quickly make to that person and other people, because it is coming up and it's important to engage with, is uh, scientists, for example, earlier this week told MPs that outdoor gatherings of this type do not mm. are not high risk whatsoever in spreading coronavirus. They're socially distanced, they're masked. And uh, BLM protests last year in America, the United States and in Britain, no evidence showed any link to increased uh, uh, coronavirus. Just want to bring that up. But yeah, over to you, Brian. And Thank then you. Ash as well. I'll, I'll leave the, the epidemiology side um, of things over there. Um, I think one of the things that often strikes me with this is that we are beleaguered by a, a paucity of imagination when it comes to looking at um, solutions for this. And I say we in, in the broader sense um, and, you know, looking at the kind of raft of measures that have been um, suggested, I believe, by uh, Labour in the last, uh, well, yeah, like this morning, potentially, or recently. Um, two of the things that struck out to me were um, a renewed look at the um, misogyny as a hate crime agenda and the... Um, making street harassment uh, specifically a criminal offence. Um, and I think, so there's been work been done around both of these and I have deep concerns about, about both of them. So misogyny is a hate crime, um, doesn't create a new offence, but it ultimately, um, you know, it creates like an, ag an aggravating factor for certain um, offences. It was piloted in Nottingham. Um, uh, in terms of the pilot, we know from looking at some of the results that came out of that was that um, uh, not exclusively, um, it, it wasn't put across in a very clear way to the people that were, when they were reporting that um, what it meant, like what misogyny uh, meant kind of uh, in terms of what that was like, what was being put down on the, on the forms. It was referred to as a, um, a tip box exercise by the police. Now I'd not be one to, um, 
agree with them necessarily, but there is an element of, of truth to that because this does nothing to actually build cultural change and start having conversations about where is this behavior coming from? Um, and I think that as an issue and as a place to focus attention, um, to me, it just feels like things are, the stakes are far too high for, for that. Um, on the street harassment as an offense, um, over the last uh, yeah 10 years like street harassment something that I've sort of done quite a bit of work around as part of like a broader sort of international network and one of the real sort of uh, big educations around that was the different ways that different countries both perceive um, the sort of everyday intrusions of street harassment um, and also how they um, seek to tackle them and we know that when France uh, brought in on-the-spot fines rather than a criminal offence for street harassment um, what did we see but an absolutely disproportionate um, amount of fines uh, being levied against um, men of colour in predominantly working class neighbourhoods when um, that disproportionality is not reflected in the prevalence data of the actual offences if that makes sense. Um, so it tells us a lot I guess about how the state uses these kinds of initiatives and legislations to tell itself stories about who is worthy of protection, who is a victim, and who is inherently dangerous. Um, and I think that we want to be very careful about supporting those kinds of measures. Um, I have lots of other thoughts about um, uh, alternatives, but uh, yeah, that was, I guess, just a, two sort of critiques of those, those twin issues that have come up. Which we'll come on to. Ash, sorry, go for it. Yeah, I mean, I just wanted to say a, a couple of things. First is that nobody wants to have to hold a vigil for a murdered woman. Nobody wants to have to go out and protest police violence against black people. And the sad fact is, is that anti-black and racist violence didn't take a break during the pandemic and gender-based violence didn't take a break either. So I definitely hear what people are saying about the potential risks of, of mass gatherings, but every precaution was taken to make that safe. And also there's data which suggests that it wasn't particularly high risk. And then the other is, well, what do you expect people to do? Because the experience of gender-based violence and also of racist policing is incredibly isolating. When it happens, you feel like you're on your own. And the one way we have to hold the line against it and to resist against it is is collective and so i really want to sort of impress the importance of that and the other thing is that we have a right to protest we have a lawful right to protest and coronavirus should not have changed that the reason why the police were able to crack down on the protesters they did is because this government did not make provisions for lawful protests within lockdown rules and i think that that was a, a terrible terrible and authoritarian move on their part and i just want to pick up on some of the things that um Bryony and and then both have been saying about the nature of, of police and policing um we know that when it comes to uh the black lives matter movement one of the things that they've been talking about is that very often uh the police and criminal justice system create the very problems which they end up policing. So when it comes to the way in which, you know, gang violence and drugs policing is used as a pretext to crack down on working class communities and working class communities of color, the experience of the criminal justice system, that kind of corrosive 
fragmenting effects that it has on communities also then worsens those problems. And so then police then demand new powers and it just becomes this vicious cycle. So not only is it often a pretext for um, brutality and for violence, it also is just not a way in which you strengthen and protect communities from within. And the sort of services which can do those things have been absolutely cut to ribbons, both in the United States and here as well. And so when we're thinking about gender-based violence, I think we've really got to start with the facts. And one of the things we should look at is, you know, are the deterrents that we have, the criminal justice deterrents operating effectively? Well, only 3% of rape complaints result in a criminal charge. Most, of course, aren't reported at all. Um, so we're in a situation where, where rape is effectively decriminalized. Um, there's no there's no consequences of it whatsoever. So what what we have isn't working. And then we've got to ask, well, do the police, you know, not only are they acting effectively in this regard, but how do they police themselves? Um, and so there was a study done of 700 cases of um, alleged domestic abuse involving police officers or police staff in three years to April 2018. And it showed that police accused of domestic abuse are a third less likely to be convicted of an offence than the general public. So police are held to a, a, a much lower standard, shall we say, than the rest of us when it comes to gender-based violence. And also a fewer of those complaints resulted in disciplinary action. So not only can we see the police and criminal justice-based deterrents not working, not working when it comes to um, preventing or addressing gender-based violence. We can see that the police as an institution is a pretty bad offender um, and really awful at, at dealing with, with gender-based violence within its own ranks. So then I think, you know, the same way Nim and, and Bryony were sort of suggesting is that we've got to look at um, alternatives. And I think that one of the things that we hardly ever do is ask ourselves the question of well why is it that male violence because violence against women is very very passive right so violence against women and girls but no one's doing it um but why is it that male violence is reproduced down the generations and continues to endure despite there having been progress on all sorts of other social fronts and that's a really tough question and i don't think that we address it with the level of rigor or honesty that it serves. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So this week we've seen this groundswell of women and non-binary people sharing their experiences, disclosing their everyday experiences often, ranging from harassment, catcalling, abusive men on the streets, to, of course, outright male violence, and talking about the safety work that they do. Uh, so do we need to start maybe with you, Bryony, about, about what the impetus for that is, what the significance of that is, and I suppose the positives, but also also what's what's the challenges? Yeah, absolutely. I mean... It's always incredibly moving anytime somebody shares a story and it's moving when that groundswell happens and we see so many, um, so many people sharing not only, I guess, experiences of violence, abuse, harm, harassment, but also their coping strategies. Um, and I think, yeah, it's interesting, particularly in so much as that then informs a media response. I do think in these obviously tremendously isolating, alienating times that we live in, it makes sense that social media is a space where these disclosures happen and many people find that extraordinarily validating. I also worry about it for a few reasons. We're what, um, three, four, four years post, post Me Too. And I don't know a single person, single survivor who hasn't wrestled with themselves within this kind of emerging culture of um, disclosure around whether they really do want to share and this feeling that almost to allay their grief or to have kind of rightful access to uh, communal empathy that we have to flay ourselves right we have to lay ourselves bare relive this trauma online often in a very necessarily because of the nature of the platforms unboundaried way because it is so public and that can leave people feeling quite undone right we know that the experiences of gender-based violence are often about um, a moment or a series of moments or maybe part of someone's lifetime where they are not in control over what happens to their body what happens to their personhood their dignity and so one of the principles would be that everything that we do to support a person after that is about putting them back in the driving seat, putting them back in control of their narrative, their life, their dignity, who they are, who they want to become. And I think sometimes there is this kind of devil's bargain because it's so public, putting stuff out there online. I just, yeah, I notice often how it, with a, a sense of, un, it's quite unnerving how keen to consume these stories um, you know, both we are as individuals and also some sections of, of the media um, kind of treating it like it's just more juicy user generated content rather than, you know, deep personal histories of trauma. And I think, you know, to uh, sort of sum that up, I, I want to see the horizon for contemporary feminism just continue to move beyond merely being seen. Right. Mm. And not a criticism at all um, of anyone who's ever found power in saying, actually, this is my story and I'm putting it out there. And you can argue, of course, that that is a, a form of taking control of it. I just, I feel like in practice, we need to be quite careful around that. And I would say, you know, that not to <laughs> always bring it back to the women's liberation movement said this because there's plenty of critiques there, but 
what you saw with that, right, is that as women became alive to the conditions of their oppression through consciousness raising, you saw strategies of mobilizing around those experiences, right? Whether that was occupying buildings, setting up the first refuges, and it comes down to what meaning do we choose to make out of our trauma and our shared experiences? Do we allow ourselves to be painted as permanently under siege in perpetual fear? Or do we reframe that to continue highlighting our incredible collective strength and resourcefulness in the face of this ongoing horror? Nim, what can I? What you... oh, no, I just really wanted to chime in that because I think you identified something really important, which is that also um, the fear of stranger rape has been a means of coercing women and controlling women as well. And that's not to say that it doesn't happen. It's not to say that those fears are unjustified or part of a moral panic, but it's also the way in which women demanding their safety also then becomes this like confining patriarchal thing. And one of the things that I've been trying to do is talk about the way in which male violence conditions and constrains the line, the lives of, of all self-identifying women and, and non-binary people. Um, and to talk about the sort of strategies that we are sort of forced to adopt in order to avoid this specter of male violence, whether that's you know, slipping a key between your knuckles or taking a longer route home or, you know, speaking on the phone to somebody or something I do, which is I like text my mates whenever something weird happens, because in my head, I go, that's going to be key evidence one day. And I think that one of the things that that can do is, is rather than forcing us to necessarily, if we don't want to disclose and repeat these traumas in a way which will also feel, you know, it lacks a meaningful catharsis sometimes because it happens in a way in which you're, you know, you get a flurry of sympathy and then not necessarily that kind of longer term support that you might need is that I think that it can open people's eyes to just like, well, hang on, regardless of whether you yourself have been a victim of sexual violence, the structural nature of sexual violence has impacted how you live your life on a daily basis. And I think that maybe that's one way in which we can open up that conversation and also like de-essentialize some of this stuff i don't think being afraid is an essential quality of, of being a woman and more importantly i don't want it to be mm -hmm. nim what are your thoughts so many um i think one of the things to pick up on this is that we've been here before um me too led to thousands millions of um women, non-binary people, gender non-conforming people sharing their stories of rape, sexual assault, harassment. Um, and I think in this moment, I think, what did that do? Where did we get to? Um, and I think we're still building on that momentum because we haven't quite built the movement uh, of action around it that's needed to, act, to, to then collectively um, fight back uh, in a in a structural way which is what this situation demands and I think that's not obviously just to be very explicit that's not to say that um, as, as Bonnie and Ash have said that we shouldn't be sharing our stories and that that's not powerful in and of itself but I think we we need to be able to unite more around what we want or bring in rather in the next step of what do we want um, I really like Ash that you just finished with I don't want 
um, that's not how you want to define womanhood. And I think one of the signs of the vigil yesterday that really stood out to me was one that said, um, when I'm walking home, I want to be free, not brave. And I mm. think um, that, that, I just thought that was a really powerful statement of when, what do we want in the world that, that enables us to not have to have our keys between our knuckles, that enables us to not have to text our friends when they're leaving a vigil to say, let me know you got home safe. Um, what what do we need collectively? And I think that what we're what, what also last night really showed me is that the movement is really like the movement has united around collectivization, around solidarity, and around bringing together all people who face gender-based violence. Um, and that's what the movement is now saying it's for, and, and where the momentum I think is, and where it's driving us to. Um, I also think it's telling that. In the wake of this, the number or the one, number one hashtag on Twitter was not all men, and the amount of commentary that was coming up is not all men. And I think if we have, I think Ash, actually, you tweeted, there's 97% of women saying I've been assaulted, 100% of men saying it wasn't me. That doesn't add up. Um, and I think that part of what happens is that in these conversations, we construct the harm doer as a monstrous other. Um, and in, and in these moments, obviously, that, that in this instance, there is a monstrous other. But I think that when we understand this problem is structural and not only individual, um, we need to ask more questions about how else is violence coming out um, and reflect on how do I do harm, not just how am I harmed. Um, because many of the stories um, many of my own stories of sexual assault and sexual violence and many of the stories that I know about include men who consider themselves good men. Mm -hmm. um, and I think part of the way that the system of misogyny and violence upholds itself is, a, I don't want to oversimplify, so I'm trying to say something in a simple way that isn't very simple, but I think there are ways in the system, there are many different factors in this system of violence that collude and corroborate to create a system of misogyny and patriarchy. And some of them are very overt and very visible and very clear, and some of them are less so. Um, men being conditioned not to really pay attention to the information that they're receiving from women um, and non-binary and, and gender and non-conforming people is part of um, I think the idea that I just want to throw out this idea that we have <laughs> I think this is there was lots of tweets like I have we, you know we have to talk to our sons and our brothers um, from men we have to talk to our friends our sons our brothers etc and I think that that's great but I think you also have to talk to yourself and I think that self-reflection, the lack of self-reflection that is conditioned into men is a significant foundation of a lot of this culture. Um, and really reflecting on your own relationship to um, consent, to entitlement and behaviours is really important in this conversation. Mm, yeah, I would completely, completely agree. And I guess the, that feels like a, a natural segue to maybe expand a bit on um, the current sort of 
um, experiments and visioning that people are doing around trying to build models for um, like more accountable communities and what that means. And I feel like the big, the big A word is obviously one that gets thrown around a lot, particularly on the internet, but um, it's, it's maybe something that, you know, everything that Nim has, has just described, I would sort of consider as, as really important kind of building blocks for, for more, <clears throat> excuse me, accountable communities um but there is you know a, a, a specific sort of framing there that you know community accountability as a as a political commitment to you know repairing or rebuilding anew um what's been broken as a result of a situation of, of violence or abuse and trying to really actively <clears throat> excuse me trying to really actively transform the conditions that led to it so it cannot happen again um, and, you know, sometimes that might be just getting a little bit more comfortable with knowing that you might be called upon to have an uncomfortable conversation with a friend about their behavior. And do you have you thought about what that might look and feel like and how you might manage that? And I think often what happens in these situations that it is that it is women, it is queer people, it's gender non-conforming people that tend to step up to do that work. Um, and, you know, certainly there are lots of really interesting kind of um community projects and organizations who are trying to just yeah start to build some of those skills and start to say to people you know whether it's a kind of procedural framework that they might use or these kind of adaptable structures that are out there um there are ways to do this i just feel that one of the one of the biggest lies that the state in its current form would have us believe and that i think we internalize at our peril is that somehow we don't have it in us to look after ourselves to look after each other um, now, obviously, trauma is complicated and, and people need often deep and committed kind of psychological support and care. But I don't think that's mutually exclusive with like being serious with each other about what it is that we can um, can offer each other. Um, and that doesn't mean that you have to, you know, stay friends with a person who's really hurt you, but it might, you know, look like other other options. I really love this idea of kaleidoscopic justice that um, some researchers at uh, the University of Durham um, have, have looked into by talking to survivors about what would it look like to have a justice system that was oriented around what you need and what you want. Um, and the idea that those things can shift and change um, so that we can build capacity to respond to gender-based violence and hopefully prevent it um, without relying on more laws and disempowering people even further. I mean, Ash, what are your thoughts on that in terms of building capacity outside um, the state? Go yeah, I mean, so one of the things I was thinking just as Bryony was talking is that, like, I think as well as having a more deeply understood framework for gender-based harms, another part of it is also having some kind of open and mature conversation about what good sex and good relationships and good experiences with men are like. Because, so, so, so when I was, when I was a, a, a teenager, when I was 17, I was, um, I was assaulted and it took me a really long time to realize that was even what it was because in my head, the idea that I wasn't actually in control of what just happened was so it was so far away I couldn't I couldn't get my head around it and part of that was because leading up to that moment I'd had a lot of education about 
what rape might look like and it was sort of somebody leaping out of the bushes or wielding a knife or something like that and very little insight or conversation of what good sex and good interactions and good experiences are meant to feel like and so because I didn't really have much of a clue of what good things were supposed to be like. I found it really hard to process the fact that a bad thing had happened. And so I think that contextualizing this discussion of fear and constraints and harms within one about pleasure and respect and consent and exploration and experimentation is really important. Because we've talked a lot about how it is men don't recognise the harm that they themselves or somebody they care about may be doing. I think another aspect of it is that because of the kind of centuries of patriarchal conditioning, it's really difficult for women to recognise when something bad has happened to them, when harm has been done to them, because you just think that this is normal and this is sort of part of the experiences that that women and non-binary and gender non-conforming people are supposed to have so I think yeah there is I think this space which and I'm not sure if I'm making much sense which is also about what are good things as well as how to recognize the bad things Nim yeah I think that makes a lot of sense to me Ash um and thank you for sharing that I think um I I just completely agree that I think we have to really Think, be thinking about. I think when I think, sorry, I'm waffling a bit. Um, <laughs> I think, uh, I'm in my feelings. In, when I think about movements and what makes successful movements, number one is we need everybody. And so we need everybody to be taking collective action on this. Um, men, women, non binary people, gender minorities, and so on together. And we need to be doing the work within that to address these dynamics. Um, and I think we've touched on these three parts of the movement that we that we distinctly need that I think sometimes we bounce between because they're also big. One is dealing with personal empowerment and dealing with trauma uh, and dealing with the harms that have been created and caused. One is challenging um, the dominant, dominant institutions and systems as they are and making change today because it's causing harm today. And one is thinking about uh, what's the alternative futures that we want, what the alternative visions that we want. And I think on the left, we've become particularly bad at that. Um, and so I think that, I think that reframe, Ash, is really, really important of how do we imagine what the positive would be like? And it makes me think about the juxtaposition coming all the way back to state violence and the police. It makes me think about the juxtaposition of, um, as an abolitionist, what I want is a, is a society built on care. Um, and I think um, Mariam Carbo, who's a US abolitionist, uh, refers to the police as violence workers. And I think that is exactly right. They work in violence. They work in perpetuating violence. Let's not forget that the origins of the Met Police were explicitly to protect, the, the very early origins were to protect colonial goods being shipped in uh, and then became the breaking down of protests or uh, mass rights. Uh, violence is absolutely embedded into the DNA of what police are. What I want in that visioning section is care workers. I want, I want a system and a society in which we, we defund the police and we use that to fund care work for and by communities um, that centres 
how do we care for people in crisis, in harm, through harm, not mm -hmm. how do we punish people. Mm -hmm. And as we in the police system, what often ends up happening is that the people reporting harm get punished if you're marginalised in any kind of way. And so uh, how do we shift that narrative towards a vision of a vision of a caring society mm -hmm. away from yeah <clears throat> there's so much within just the idea that i guess there are experiments that can be done but that we can look at the broader abolitionist horizon but also think about literally today now like where where might we go with this and um yeah when you were talking about i guess men's behavior change um was thinking about you know over the last year i've been kind of advising some men who've come together to sort of run a um you know a peer accountability like learning group and they meet on zoom and have these conversations and obviously i love that because i'm like well that's not new women's liberation did this isn't this but <laughs> actually bring these things and improve them and say well what do we know now and what can you be doing to um you know ha have conversations together that aren't like a performative thing that's just online um but that are actually doing some hard and difficult work you know there are obviously like yeah encouraging people to donate money and time or just attention to uk-based organizations that are you know, led by people of color like cradle community resist and renew healing justice london who are building these resources now right around things like survivor support mediation you know therapeutic spaces i think you know, obviously, yeah, broader context, but a lot of the sex worker-led organising through groups like Swarm that really centres care and supports people who are on, you know, the sharpest end of, of state violence um, in that way is, is totally exemplary and, and really under-resourced. Um, so I guess, yeah, I'm, I'm always sort of thinking about the, the bigger picture, but also all of these small things that we can be doing and looking at now, just so that people, maybe people who are listening to this going, oh my God, this is awful. It's like, there are things that you can um, be doing and can be sort of supporting to find, I guess, a bit of joy in this um, struggle to see all the amazing things that people are doing. Before I ask about supporting survivors, I mean, in terms of the socialization of men, which you've all been touching upon, I mean, all men know that from an early age, a certain form of masculinity is drummed into your head, which is a very, very violent interpretation of being a man, which expects you to engage in often random and gratuitous violence and never back down, but to speak about women in the most demeaning and degrading way possible. And I, I think what's not often remarked upon is the role of homophobia, because even though clearly gay, queer, bi people, men are the main victims of male homophobia by definition, Homophobia, most straight men are on the receiving end of homophobia at some point in their life. It's used as the violent border guards of masculinity uh, because uh, to, 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 to get people to conform. That if you don't speak about women in these horrendous ways, then people will go, why are you some sort of puff? Are you some sort of bender? Are you gay or something? And that is so dominant from such an early age. I don't know what your thoughts about that because it just it seems to me that homophobia is actually quite central to a lot of this. Ash or Brian? Yeah, no. I, I mean, okay. massively, and I can't remember. Um, so I've just been like so absorbed by this conversation and and being able to learn from Nim and from Brian is just such such an immense privilege. But I can't remember who it was that said it, which is that you know men are really bad readers of women like really really bad readers of women and that thing about having to be honest with yourself about like how much you don't see and how much you don't take on board and all of those like non-verbal signals as well around like discomfort or that's a polite fake smile rather than a real one 
because if you develop those skills of emotional intelligence, then you're seen as too feminine for a man, effeminate, and, you know, oh, you might be gay. So it's also the way in which some of the emotional tools that we need men to develop in order to address this problem of male violence, it's something which is closed down and policed out by homophobia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess the the individual basis and the sort of um, the structural basis with some of this, like when you said that, Owen, I immediately thought about, you know, one of the things that we do not have in the UK um, that always strikes me is we don't have a we don't have a primary prevention infrastructure um, and often people don't even know like what that is but when I did um, work in the women's sector in Australia it's like a really well understood thing and it's a, it's a strategic collaborative like consistent national approach to preventing um, gender-based violence and one of the things that is in there is understanding the role that homophobia plays alongside things like you know how um, relations between men and boys that emphasize and reward aggression and punish empathy and care and punish, um, you know, behaving outside certain um, norms, how all of those things um, taken together, obviously, with, you know, victim blaming, condoning and excusing violence against women, patriarchal control, more broadly, all of the economic inequalities um, as well. And when we understand those gendered drivers, it's like the research is there and there is, you know, we could be really kind of trying to, um, rather than talking about new uh, laws to punish um, certain things, we could be saying, well, what can we do in terms of really investing in like a primary prevention agenda for the UK? Like, I would really like to see that as a policy point. <laughs> I like it. Yes. Yes. Policy points. Just like, because I know we're running out of time. So just a couple of points. Uh, I mean, and, and anyone take either or both, whatever um, you feel is appropriate and you're comfortable with but in terms of supporting survivors care in the context of supporting survivors your thoughts on that and also and obviously this was raised by someone earlier on in the program about how transphobic elements are trying to co-opt uh what's happened in the last week who wants to start do you want to start Nim? yeah i can kick us off and it, uh, it links into what we were just talking about as well which is that i think um to come back to the question of homophobia and I'll link it into those questions I is that I think that absolutely and that's why much of the anti-violence movement over the last decades has kind of reframed itself around gender-based violence as opposed to um only talking about uh violence against women um not because we shouldn't just for anybody who's going to write in the comments I'm not saying don't say women <laughs> to be clear <laughs> but that that system the system that punishes men for femininity is, and as Ash pointed out, connect, connecting to emotions, to empathy, which then leads to more harm uh, against women and other gender minorities. I think it's all one system. Um, and it makes me think of, um, Bryony, when you were doing that shout out to services, that was really awesome. And it makes me think of a service that I actually don't know if it still runs, um, but chances are it's probably had its funding cut and it doesn't, there used to be a, uh, service in the UK called Circles that would run um, restorative justice circles with perpetrators of sexual violence um, to collectively harm as well as, uh, sorry, collectively heal as well as educate, not collectively harm, that would be the opposite, collectively <laughs> educate um, perpetrators of sexual violence. And I think we need more of that. Um, and I think because we live in a system in which one of the ways the system upholds itself is to take away um to cut services for violence against women and um 
the victims of harm, I think politically, even the leftist movement sometimes becomes anti these kinds of conversations and policies or, or programs because we get into a very um, scarcity mindset about where the, the limited resource should go. Uh, and I think what we should be demanding is both. Um, the other reason that a gender-based violence narrative I think is really important is uh, exactly as you just spoke to, Owen, is that it's about the inclusion of um, different gender minorities, non-binary people, and so on and so forth. And I think what we've really seen on that front in the feminist movement in the last week and beyond is, well, actually the last few years is, and I think what really came into stark contrast yesterday, is that we've got a very, very, in the UK, a very aggressive anti-trans feminist movement who have become more and more litigious and have spent hundreds of thousands of pounds in the last year taking things to court to change three words in a census recommendation guide uh, to bolster their anti-trans position, colluding with the state, a very carceral feminist logic. Meanwhile, the rest of the movement was out yesterday together collectively saying we are being harmed we are unifying against the state and against that harm together. Um, and I, to me, that really came out in stark contrast uh, at, at, or in the last week in responses to what's happening. There are some people who are gatekeeping, who is harmed by patriarchy, and I have no idea what they think that any of us gain. Uh, mm. in that. I mean, I, I agree with you 100, 1,000%, and just listening to yours, touching the air by myself um i spent international women's day with transphobes calling me a man right and i'm a pretty run-of-the-mill cisgender woman i'm a cisgender heterosexual there's nothing interesting about my gender identity whatsoever um but because i'm in favor of recognizing transgender and non-binary and gender non-conforming people for who they are and saying you should be able to live in peace and dignity as who you are. There were a whole bunch of transphobes who were more interested in calling me a man and saying that, you know, I shouldn't be included in International Women's Day events and posts, rather than maybe just getting on with the business of, you know, talking about women's issues and the sort of structural discrimination and oppression that we face. And that for me is just so revealing of what your priorities are, because it's not actually about collective emancipation and projects of collective emancipation always have ill-defined edges, always. And how you feel about where those edges should be drawn are going to be different from other people. And you kind of have to make your peace with that. That's the work of solidarity. Rather than throwing themselves wholeheartedly into it, it was about, in a very hateful way, um, policing those boundaries. And it's just such a rubbish use of anyone's time or anyone's energy. I just want to speak to this from the perspective of, of a cisgender woman of colour. How I experience gender-based oppression is different from how a white woman will experience it. It takes on very particular forms for me where a lot of the time my femininity isn't even recognized, going from people calling me like a bloke with a mustache or treating me in ways which just, I know white women don't get treated. Does that mean I am more or less of a woman 
than anybody else. No, it just means that, you know, gender-based oppression is quite flexible and can, can accommodate other forms of oppression as well. And it's the same for me with transgender women in particular. Now, how they experience gender-based oppression is not going to be exactly the same as me as a cisgender woman. But you know what? There are a hell of a lot of commonalities. Every transgender woman I've spoken to this week has talked about doing all the same things that I do to keep themselves safe when they're out and about. Texting mates, let me know when you're back safe, you know, keys between the knuckle, feeling nervous about, you know, certain forms of transport in certain places. That is like for like 100% the same as me. And it's because they're being targeted, they're experiencing the world as women. And then on top of that, you've got the element of, of transphobia. And so for me, not only is it completely pointless to draw these false distinctions where they don't exist, it's also dangerous. Because the minute you go, here is a subset of women who aren't really women, we're not going to include them in the sisterhood. We're not going to say you're worthy of our solidarity and our collective protection. And you're not part of this project of, of collective emancipation, be it because you're transgender or you're a sex worker or you're undocumented migrant. Who wins? Who wins from saying that? Because it's not us. It's not cisgender women. We're not made safer by that. The only people who benefit from that are perpetrators of male violence. Mm, yeah. I was just thinking while you were talking that, you know, one of the um, many like beautiful things about the kind of strategic project of Sisters Uncut is there is this fearless commitment to upholding the need to ring fence funding for specialist services, whilst also, you know, critiquing the gatekeeping in some parts of the women's sector and just brooking absolutely no compromise, re-trans inclusion um, and, you know, the just dead end of, of carcelism. And, uh, you know, I just feel, yeah, thinking about yesterday and thinking about as we're talking, there are people who are waiting outside police stations for the women and non-binary people that were arrested yesterday. And, you know, they, like, we face down the people who would trample our flowers and grab the arms of our sisters and we say no absolutely not and I think Sisters Uncut deserve um, a lot of, of credit for um, the support yesterday and the support today. Amen. Uh, look that was absolutely incredible I've just been had a quick look at some of the comments and people are, are moved they're educated uh, it's been an absolutely incredible conversation and a huge huge honor and a huge huge privilege for you to share your your experiences, your, your wisdom, your insights. Uh, and I can't thank you enough on behalf of everyone who's watched and everyone who will listen to this on the podcast and so on. So just thank you so, so much, all of you, and huge love and, and solidarity for what you do every single day. We're very lucky as a movement to have all, all three of you, but thank you so, so much. Big up. Thank you. Thanks for Take care. See you soon. Take care. Well, I mean, that was incredible. And I think in the coming days and weeks, what's so important is we all do everything we can to amplify voices like this, to listen, to learn, to be educated. I've been educated by this conversation hugely. And, and I know many of you watching and listening to this will have as well. In the coming days and weeks, there will be protests. Uh, please do support them. Socially distance protests, bring your mask. Uh, do, do signal boosts. When you see those protests, do support organizations like Sisters Uncut, follow them on Twitter and on Facebook, share their posts, 
make sure, you know, not just on Twitter and social media, text them, WhatsApp them uh, to your friends. Let's make sure that this goes viral. This has been a horrific week, a truly grim week. But if anything good comes out of this is that this is a conversation which cannot be shut down and isn't being shut down. And we can see that about however isolated everybody all is, we're all still living through the biggest national emergency since the war. We can see through social media how this conversation has taken a life of its own. And I think this is not something that can be put back in the lamp. And this week, another very, very important moment. Labour now have been forced uh, to a U-turn on abstaining, shockingly, on the policing bill, as they abstained on the undercover, uh, the spy cops bill, the undercover cops bill, giving undercover cops massive powers in order to, uh, giving them the ability to legally torture, rape and kill. They are now voting against, and now we have to build pressure to kill the bill, support Sisters and Cut and their kill the bill protests. Uh, But I want to give a special thanks to those who supported the show throughout. Mark Gorman, Ed Jarvis, uh, James Gunn, uh, Jeb Supertramp, Samantha James, AAGA and Juliet de Blue Young. Thank you so, so much. Uh, On the podcast, if you're listening to the podcast, share the podcast, please subscribe. And if you give five stars, it encourages, again, more people to listen. Uh, For those supporting us on Patreon, that enables us to do our work, not least the documentary we're doing this week. Um, on the companies that have profited directly from the pandemic. Uh, So if you can support us, we have uh, our media workers on union wages, thanks to your support, which we really appreciate. And that video, I think, will be something I hope you can be proud of those who support us on on Patreon. Uh, Thank you so much, everyone. These are horrifying times, but there is hope and optimism, not least from voices like we've heard today, that this struggle is going to not just continue, but to escalate. and those who attacked those women at that vigil, mourners at that vigil, in time, they are going to lose because of the determination and resilience that you saw from those women who stood and fought their ground uh, at that vigil. Um, So please do, as I've said, keep uh, supporting the struggle of the likes of Sisters and Cut, amplifying the voices that need to be heard. This show will now, from now on, always be at 12 p.m. Thanks for those who noticed the time change on Sundays. And throughout the week, we'll have interviews and, of course, the documentary. Stay safe, everyone. Huge solidarity. And I will see you soon.